The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. A while ago, I was at a dinner party and I found myself sitting next to a woman I had not met before. So we went through the usual getting to know you pleasantries. What's your name? Where do you live? Why do you talk funny? What do you do? Now, let me tell you, I've been a Unitarian Universalist minister and student before that for 45 years. And I've liked being a minister, I really have. But in social situations like that, I have always rather dreaded being asked that question. That was particularly, particularly the case in the United Kingdom, where going to church, let alone being a minister, was generally regarded as a sign of mental deficiency. I dreaded the question because invariably I would get one of three reactions. The first was that I could see the instant look of fear in the other person's eyes. The quick checking, checking for the nearest exit as they apparently think that I'm about to get all evangelical on them. And then for the rest of the evening, they apologize if they happen to say anything even remotely irreverent or, goodness me, a swear word, because as a parson, I obviously am a person of very delicate sensibilities. The second response is that they spend the rest of the evening interrogating me as if there is no other subject in which I could possibly be interested or able to converse. But the third response, the third response is by far the worst. That is when they spend the rest of the evening telling me all the reasons why they do not go to church. Now let me assure you, whether or not someone goes to church or which church they choose to go to is entirely a matter for them. I really don't care, but they seem to feel the need to justify why they don't go to church, usually with all of the most specious rational, rationalizations you could think of, all of which I've heard many, many times before. This woman fell very definitely into that third category. She proceeded to tell me at great length about her disdain for church, her reasons for not going. Churches are full of hypocrites, she said. It's not true, by the way. Churches are not full of hypocrites. There's room for plenty more. Religion is bunk, she said nothing but superstition and nonsense and think of the wars started because of it, blah, 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 blah. Well, I tried to keep my head down. I tried to pretend I was intensely interested in my Brussels sprouts. I was a guest after all. My mother did bring me up right. I know, I know it's not good manners to start an argument at somebody else's dinner party. But then this woman said, and anyway, 
going to church doesn't make you a better person. Well, that's when I kind of snapped. I turned on her. That is exactly where you are wrong, I said. Going to church does make me a better person. And that's the whole point. I go to church in order to be a better person. Not a better person than you. Not a better person than anyone else. But a better person than I think I would be if I did not go to church. And how could it be otherwise? Because going to church reminds me of values the world would so easily otherwise make me forget. Going to church puts me in the company of the wisdom of humanity's great spiritual teachers and exemplars and holds me accountable to, the, to their examples. Going to church means I learn the stories of everyday folk, everyday folk leading everyday imperfect lives like mine who have somehow overcome great adversity in their lives with serenity, equanimity, through the steadfastness of their faith. Going to church means I hear poetry and music which touch my soul, which comfort and inspire my sometimes tremulous and fainting heart. Going to church does not make me a better person than anyone else. It makes me a better person than I would otherwise be. It makes me a person who is trying, at least, to pay attention to the business of being faithful in life, faithful to life, holding myself accountable to that which is so much greater than myself. I go to church because I want to be a person of faith. Ah, faith. But what is faith? I did once come across a definition of faith that I had not previously encountered. But before I tell you that definition, let me ask you a question. How would you define faith? If you worked at the Oxford English Dictionary and were responsible for words beginning with the letter F, what would you say about faith? And I was once at a dinner party, and yes, my life does consist of nothing but dinner parties, where another guest did work for the Oxford English Dictionary, and he was an expert in words beginning with the letter P. Anyway, how would you define faith as an objective phenomenon in human life? And perhaps more interestingly, how would you describe faith as a subjective phenomenon in your life? What is the basis, the reality, the significance of faith for you? Well, the definition that I encountered was that faith is believing things you know are not true. Faith is believing things you know are not true. It is a rather cynical definition, it has to be said. But then Mark Twain was not known for being entirely without criticism of the many foibles of re organized religion. Twain's rationale was that if you know something is true, then believing it does not require faith. Therefore, faith 
is believing what you know is not true. One of the subjects that I had to study for my theology degree was, I quote, the development of Christian doctrine up to the year 461 Anno Domini. I know, pretty exciting stuff, right? Those first few hundred years were very important in the life of the emerging Christian church as it tried to make sense of itself. But somehow it got sidetracked into the mistaken idea that being a Christian meant believing the right things, at least saying you believed the right things. It's the only major world religion which is based on the primacy of belief. None of the others are, not Islam, not Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. All of them, in different ways, are about practicing the life of faith. But early on, Christianity got stuck in the idea that it was all about saying you believed the right things. And this was largely thanks to the efforts of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who, for his entirely political reasons, wanted to impose his own power over the empire. Hence, the Council of Nicaea, which came up with the Nicene Creed, which to this day is recited word for word in churches around the world. If you know anything about the Nicene Creed, you will know this. It's all about saying you believe things about Jesus, believing things which are unbelievable about Jesus. It says nothing about what Jesus taught. It says nothing about how you might live following those teachings of Jesus. So the early church fathers tried to formulate it all into a coherent system of beliefs, separate from but consistent with the Judaism from which it had been hewn and compatible with the predominantly Gentile pagan world within which it was taking root. What could it all have meant for Jesus to have been the savior and yet to have died so ignominiously, to have been both God and man? It was a great intellectual challenge, a puzzle over which endlessly to fret. And those early Christians kept holding councils, not just at Nicaea, but for the next century or more, at which bishops from throughout the emerging Christian world would assemble to argue for weeks and weeks and weeks about the tiniest detail of doctrine. They would meet in smoky back deals, back rooms, they would do deals, they would cajole and threaten, and then finally they would hold a vote. And those on the losing side who did not immediately repent the error of their ways were then banished, imprisoned, or executed. I suggest that you here at, at San Francisco might like to introduce that into your UU congregational meetings. It would certainly liven things up, and I suspect that John, in his time as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, might have been glad to have had such powers 
in some of your political arguments. Anyway, it was Tertullian in the early part of the third century who wrote a vast tome on the doctrine of the Trinity, trying to make sense of how three could be one and one could be three and each was separate, yet they were all the same. And though Jesus was the son of God, he was as old as God, although ordinarily a son did come after the father. Thousands of pages of this going around and around. You can see why my blood pressure used to go through the roof reading this thrilling, exciting stuff. Poor old Tertullian got himself into a terrible tangle and the more he tried to explain it, the more of a tangle he got himself into until finally, in exasperation, he throws up his hands and he declares, it is absurd. That is why I believe it. Well, I guess some things don't change much because when I look critically at some of the details of what some churches expect you to say you believe, I throw up my hands and exclaim, it's absurd. The difference is, that's why I don't believe it. But for all that some things that some people say they believe as articles of their faith might, in my entirely non-judgmental opinion, be completely unreasonable, having faith is not unreasonable. Not only is having faith, living faithfully, not unreasonable, having faith is essential because without it, all is lost. The story is told of a tribe in West Africa, the story of the Sky Maiden. It happened once that the people of this tribe noticed that their cows were not giving as much milk as usual, and they couldn't understand why this should be. They looked as healthy as ever, the pasture was as nourishing looking as ever. So one young man volunteered to stay up one night to see if anything was happening. And after several hours of waiting in the darkness, he saw something extraordinary. He saw a maiden of astonishing beauty riding down from the sky on a moonbeam, carrying a large pail. And she milked the cows one by one, filling her pail, and then she climbed back up into the sky on a moonbeam. The young man couldn't believe what he had just seen, so he lay in wait again the following night, and sure enough, the maiden appeared again to milk the cows, riding down on the moonbeam, returning to the sky on the moonbeam. On the third night, he set a trap, and when she came down again, he sprang the trap and caught her. Who are you? he demanded. So she explained that she was a sky maiden, a member of, tri of a tribe who lived in the sky and who had no food of their own. So it was her job to come down to earth at night to find food. And she pleaded with him to let her go, but he was so enchanted by her great beauty that he demanded that she marry him. Well, I will marry you, she said, but first you must let me go back to my home for three days. I promise I will return. 
The man agreed. She returned to the sky. Three days later, true to her promise, she returned carrying a large box. I will marry you, she said, but you, I'll make you very happy, but you must promise me never to look inside the box. Time passed, they were very happy. Then one day when his wife was out, the man was overcome with curiosity and he opened the box. There was nothing in it. And as soon as she returned, she intuitively knew that he had opened the box. Yes, I did open the box, he confessed, but I don't understand why you forbade me from looking inside an empty box. I can't be your wife anymore, she said. Why? What's so terrible about looking inside an empty box? I'm not leaving you because you looked inside the box, she replied. I knew that one day you would. I'm leaving you because you said it was empty. It was not empty. It was full of sky. When I went home for that last time, I filled the box with everything that was most precious to me to remind me of where I came from. The box contained the light, the air, the smells from my home in the sky. How can I live with you when everything that is most precious to me is mere emptiness to you? Being a person of faith is not about what you believe. Being a person of faith is fundamentally, how do you see the world? Is the world mere emptiness, in spite of all there is of beauty and charm, miracle, wonder, delight? Or is the world precious, in spite of all there is of pain, anguish, bitterness, ugliness and suffering. Being a person of faith is ultimately about how you see the world. We are living in times which challenge the way we see the world. We are dealing still two years on with a virus to which, in spite of the genius and inventiveness of scientists, continues to find new ways to ravage the human species. We live in a time in which people that belong to a once noble political tradition now willingly and cravenly are seeking to undermine the very foundations of democracy. We live in a time that challenges us with justifiable fear and anxiety and uncertainty. How will we see the world? When he was 53 years old, Ed Guiton, an Englishman, went on a rock climbing holiday in Bolivia. He was a very fit and active man. He'd always been active in strenuous outdoor sports. And one evening after a satisfying, tiring day of climbing, he was back in his hotel room when a combination of high altitude and low blood pressure made him do something he had never done before. He fainted. And as he fell, he hit his head on the bedpost and broke his neck. A freak 
meaningless accident, and Ed Guiton now is a quadriplegic. How would you cope if such a thing happened to you? How would you cope? How would you continue to see the world as precious and not empty? The fact is that all of us, all of the time, is just one second away from the possibility that our safe, predictable, contented lives will be wrenched irredeemably from us and twisted into some unimaginable new shape. How would you cope? How would you adjust the way you see the world so that you could continue to live in it so that the world remained full of things precious to you? In an essay about his experience, Guiton writes this. There is still immense pain and frustration, but I am heartened, if by nothing else, than by a change of direction in my dreams. There is one recurring dream in which I've got two walking sticks and I'm hobbling painfully down the road, jerking about a bit, and people are walking past and I can hear them muttering, poor old sod. And I'm saying, no, you don't realize this is me getting better. Being a person of faith ultimately is knowing that in spite of everything that might appear as evidence to the contrary, in spite of the feeling sometimes that we are strangers and pilgrims in an inhospitable land, in spite of whatever misfortune or malady or malpractice or mendacity might befall us, in spite of it all, life is good. Life is precious. It does make sense. It is worthwhile. And though we might not know what it is, there is meaning and purpose to it. Sometimes people construct elaborate theologies and observe strict rituals, write endless tomes to remind and reassure themselves of that basic article of faith. And sometimes people just feel it in their bones. There is the story of the Jews, prisoners in one of the Nazi horror camps. And one day they decided to put God on trial for allowing this terrible suffering that was all around them. One acted as the prosecutor, the other counsel for the defense, the rest, the jury. And after each side had put their case in this mock trial, the jury decided the case for the prosecution was overwhelming. There was no God, and if there was, such a God was not worthy of their worship. And just as they delivered their verdict, one of them noticed that the sun was setting. Look, he said, the sun is setting. It's the start of the Sabbath. And together, they all turned and prayed. Having faith is what enables you, in spite of everything, still to turn to your God and pray. It is the way you see the world. And coming to church is a way of being reminded that there is this way to see the world. 
It is to be in the company of all who have seen the world and everything in it as wondrous and holy, the ground on which we walk together and have centered their lives on that vision, a vision that sustains them through whatever might have been their fortune, be it fair or otherwise. We stand on the cusp of another new year. In this, whatever the state in our own small private world or in the larger public world, how will you continue to look upon the world as precious and holy? What will be the sustenance and the foundation that will guide you through and sustain you through whatever this new year might hold? And will part of that be through being here in church with others in the, in the presence of that which is holy and true and eternal? And if there are people out there who look at us and say in their condescending way, poor deluded sods, we can reply, no, don't you see, this is us and we're getting better. So may it be. Amen. Mm -hmm.